This week's episode of Lock and Key is about housing co-ops, and it's brought to us by Rebecca Nolan. Hi. Hey, I'm, Rebecca. I'm Rebecca Nolan. How are you? <laughs> you are Rebecca Nolan. I am. <laughs> Rebecca, do you want to start by telling us a little about yourself? Um, I am a radio producer in St. John's, and I've been doing radio for like seven years now, I want to say, maybe, give or take. Um, okay, where do you want to start? How do you want to get into this? Um, we're going to start off with a protest. So this happened back in the day, um, back around late 70s, early 80s, when we were having another housing crisis in St. John's, because the housing crisis is not a new crisis. Um, and it was a group of artists who got together to kind of raise awareness for some demolitions that were going on at the time. So our co-op started with a parade with a coffin. And it came out of a lot of uh, political um, awareness and protest and stuff because what was going on was all the old houses were being torn down. St. John's is dying was our cry. St. John's is dying, ooh. And uh, we stopped in at City Hall and we wanted to speak to the mayor that was Dottie Wyatt at the time. And so the person said, Dottie Wyatt is out to lunch. So we all started chanting, Dottie Wyatt is out to lunch. <laughs> People think of the housing crisis as happening, you know, last year or two years ago. It's 20 years, easy, more, like since it's been a struggle to find anything decent to live, you know, to live in. And, uh, you know, and it's just basically getting worse. One of the voices we heard in there was Frank Barry. And when I talked to Frank, he was telling me about when he first remembers coming down to St. John's in the 70s. So in the 70s, when I first got down into St. John's, it was, I, I would believe it was 1972. So I was 18. I'd been to Toronto and come back. And what I did was I just started knocking on doors uh, on Gower Street. Knock, knock, knock. Have you got a room to rent? And I just kept on doing that until somebody over 23 Gower Street said, yeah, actually, we do have a room to rent. And I said, okay, how much? And they told me $50 a month. Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> Very year, different. What year was this? Um, it was in the 70s sometime. So in the 70s, you could walk down Gower Street, knock on doors, actually find a place, and it was affordable. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know how much inflation, like, a part of me was like, was 50 bucks like 7,000 back then? Or was it like, <laughs> how many dollars is that in today's money? So it was easier back then. There wasn't a lot of money on the go, but there were way more available houses, way more empty houses that people had the option of moving into. It's difficult to even realize the kind of housing that was on the go here back then, because most young people could get together and basically rent a house like this or a mansion sometimes and live in it. Nobody wanted them. I mean, you could get a very large Victorian mansion for next to nothing. That's Frank's wife, Rhonda Belly. So we did grow up in Victorian mansions downtown. I mean, it was amazing. We had great yeah. parties, <laughs> you know, but uh, and yeah. And it was all communal living. And it was all communal living, yeah. Everybody lived very communally for a very long time. So everyone was living really communally, which was perfect because this was kind of at the beginning of the Newfoundland quote-unquote renaissance. So we had a lot of artists living and working together, which was really good for the art scene. These were places where young artists could live while they were kind of honing their craft. 
And so because they're all living together, it was really great for the artistic movement. And groups like Sheila's Brush got their starts here in these communal houses. Frank went on to become an actor and a playwright. And Rhonda became a painter and a visual artist. And these houses weren't just helping the artists. The, the fact that these people were living in these old houses was actually keeping them from being torn down. So it was kind of this symbiotic relationship. Absolutely nobody wanted the houses that they would basically be going derelict. And so the people, people moving in and renting them for so cheap actually kept those houses alive because people were really wanting to tear down all the housing. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 you know there, was, there was a politics that was a part of it, even though people may not even been aware that they're involved in something political. Because this was kind of at the beginning of the first whispers of gentrification in downtown St. John's. So, like often happens, the, the, the artists and people like that who can't get mortgages um, couldn't afford to go and buy the stuff and live in them. So, people got squeezed. That stuff started to um, disappear. If you traveled back in time in St. John's, the landscape of the city looked really different around this time. Where City Hall is now, that was just a war of slums. Back in the early 80s, St. John's was in the midst of an urban renewal program um, that had been going on for a couple decades. The city council at the time wanted to kind of clean up the areas that they saw as problematic, and they started tearing down entire neighborhoods, especially low-income neighborhoods. But from Brazil Square uh, was sort of the last holdout um, going to the west of that community. So Brazos Square was a community of mainly boarding houses. It was somewhere that people who were down on their luck could get a room. But in the 80s, the city decided to tear it down, which was basically doing away with some of the last low-income housing in the city. And that was the catalyst for the protest plays that we heard at the top of the episode. So we decided to do a show that was about what was going on. The show was called Patent Pageant Profiles. We actually went down there one day and, and did try to do a show in front of Bulldozer that was bulldozing him down, but you know, we were quickly removed. So they did the play like right across the street from the Bulldozer instead. And they had this backdrop with a line of row houses that were all in these kind of dark, dreary colors. But there was one jelly bean row house, which was the beginning of gentrification because that's where the gentrification, like those jelly bean row didn't, this is not an old thing that happened in St. John's. This is something that came with people, younger people moving in with money. The play that they did actually opened with a song. <laughs> I can give you the opening. So, so we come and say, uh, why were we born, born to be a victim? Kicked out on the street. <laughs> keep going, keep going, keep going. I can't, I can't. That's, I can only remember that on that opening line. So you said no. But it was a really long song. I know that. And we put all the politics into it. Did you say born to be evicted? Yes. Kicked out on the street. Genius. Yeah, and so they put all of the politics into it, all of the concerns about loss of affordable housing and what the future held for artists and low-income people in St. John's. Because around the time that they were doing this play, Frank's friends, who were artists and activists, were finding it really hard to keep living downtown. 
Um, gentrification had taken away those large communal houses that they'd relied on, and they were facing the real possibility of getting priced out. And so they started having meetings at the LSPU Hall to try and come up with a solution. Someone in the group heard that there might be government money for low-income people to form housing collectives. They had meetings at the hall uh, to uh, you know, try to establish some kind of uh, housing cooperative. Frank, at the time, had housing that he thought was pretty secure, and so he stopped going to the meetings. But other people from Sheila's Brush kept going, and they went on to form the Save Our Downtown Co-op, or SOD Co-op. But we got to back up for a second, because to understand SOD, we kind of have to know what a co-op actually is. I mean, there's co-ops everywhere in this, in this world, everywhere. You can go on the continent and not find co-op housing. That's Ross Langer. She's a project manager for the Cooperative Housing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. And we say channel. It's easier to say channel than all that big, long sentence. And Ross has been with Channel for over 25 years now. I know every co-op unit across this province, and I know all the members as well. I know their family history, I know their circumstances, and, you know, and, and, and I'm just glad to be able to help. So Ross told me that housing co-ops have been on the go since the 1800s, and they're actually a really great way to provide housing that's affordable and secure. Co-ops are collectively owned and operated by their members, and so if you live in a co-op, you wouldn't own your house, the co-op would but you'd be part of a community and be able to help make decisions about housing costs and maintenance and the future of your co-op. And you'd also be safe from evictions and unfair rent increases. We don't pay rent. We're not bound by landlord and tenant. They pay uh, housing charges and that pays and takes care of all the things that need to be done in a housing co-op. Roofs, windows, doors, siding, general maintenance, um, you know, pays all the taxes and that stuff. So you don't have that to pay individually, you pay it collectively. So as a group, it works. And people like getting involved. They like the sense of community and housing co-op. And living in a co-op can also be less expensive than renting an apartment on your own because co-ops are nonprofit. Um, they're not out to make money, but they're focused on the good of the community. And the difference is you have a sense of belonging, you have a sense of home, a sense of security. And um, you know that the landlord's not gonna knock on your door tomorrow and say, oh, by the way, and the bank is not going to come knocking and say, oh, by the way, because if you fall on hard times in, in a housing co-op, we're all there to help each other out. So if a person couldn't pay their monthly housing charge, they could talk to the co-op board and explain their situation, and the board could help them figure out a payment system that worked better for them. We're not profit. We're not looking to make a profit. We're looking to be able to house our members where they can live and enjoy their families and they don't have to worry about keeping a roof over their head and bread on the table. Like I said, co-op housing is, to me, is, is the best thing. It's, it's the answer to a lot of uh, the home issues that we have currently on the market today. And 40 years ago, the Canadian government thought pretty much the same thing. So in 1979, the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation, or CMHC, started a program that was called Section 95 Housing. And it was dedicated to creating new housing co-ops to support low-income people. But anyway, but there was a time that the Canadian government felt it was a good idea to invest in low- and mid-income housing. That's Kevin Hare. He's the current president of SOD. They guaranteed loans at a really good rate. Again, I don't even know the rate, at a very good rate, if you could organize to a certain level. So if you wanted to start a co-op in 1980, you could apply for one of these low interest rate loans. Um, and the idea was to incentivize creating co-ops that could house low income people by making sure that 
even if the co-op had to take out a loan, they could still keep the houses affordable. And they were all across the country. It was a huge success. In the six years that it was operating, Section 95 helped to finance 39,000 homes in 1,000 co-ops across Canada. And SOD was one of those co-ops. With the help of a lawyer, the members of SOD were able to buy eight houses. And unlike a standard co-op, these houses weren't all grouped together. They're scattered all across downtown St. John's. But that is, I, I think that's one of the most interesting things about this co-op, right? Is that it's, you could look around and, well, I mean, we're downtown right now and like Frank and Ronta are, they're down the street, right? Yeah. So you have no idea that that's a co-op house, but it absolutely is. It's just part of the fabric of the city. Yeah. It's like a secret co-op. <laughs> yeah. And for over 40 years, the Save Our Downtown Co-op has provided not just affordable housing, but also a community. And Frank and Rhonda, who we heard from earlier in the episode, are the newest members of the community. We've been here for about three years. Yeah, three years. We came in, we moved in the middle of COVID, but we had a little window when we weren't locked down. It was like one of those times when, you know, we would open for like six weeks or something. So we managed to move during that time. Um, Yeah, so it was 2020, maybe. So how Frank and Rhonda got into the co-op... They'd both known about the co-op for years. Frank was really good friends with the original founders, and he was part of those protest plays up at the top. Um, And they say that getting into Sod was kind of a godsend for them. It came at a really fantastic time because we had lived in an apartment for 15 years. 20, actually. 20 years. And uh, it it was fantastic. It was a really nice apartment. We loved it, big windows and stuff, and we had great parties and stuff there. But their landlord decided to sell the house. And it wasn't even, it wasn't just affordability. It was also, there's nowhere, you couldn't find a place to live. And, you know, when you see uh, a rent, uh, something goes up for rent and there's a lineup of people around the block looking to get in there. I mean, it's so scary. So a very far cry from the knock on doors until you find a place to live. For $50. Yeah. Um, so... Years earlier, Frank had run into Derek Norman, who was one of the original founders of Sod, and he asked to be put on the wait list for the co-op. We found out the house was being sold, and then ran into Derek and said, oh, he said, you guys looking, still looking to get into co-op? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, come to a meeting, and we got it. It's a fantastic house. It's a, it's a, it's a, a narrow, it's almost, when we first moved in here, I felt like it was like a tower. It was like this great tower because it's it's three stories, but the ceilings are quite high, but the rooms are, are smallish. So it's like, it, it almost has a tower feeling to it. Um, it has great light. It's very airy. When you have the windows open in the summer, the air just travels through it beautifully. So Frank and Rhonda have really made the place their own. Uh, they painted the walls bright colors and hung Rhonda's art throughout the house. The co-op gave them security and a home instead of just a roof and four walls. They know that the house that they're living in won't be sold out from under them and that a landlord isn't going to come banging on the door demanding more rent. You vote on how much your housing fee is going to be a month. That goes into the pot, and that goes into the pot to maintain the houses. So you are responsible for your own house, as a homeowner is responsible for their own house, but you also work together as a community. So inside of that idea of the community, you have, you, there's, a lot more, there's a lot more support 
And that security is vital in a housing market that can be so fickle. All of Saad's members have these feelings, a feeling of home. All right, so I'll give you a little tour. So this is the front room, obviously. Um... Kevin Hare walks me through his house. It's 100 years old and has a large bay window and a front porch. So it's a kind of funky old house. Like, it's got this little room here. Like, we call it push-through. You, you know, if you had dinner party, you could put your things through there. So, um, nice big old Kevin house. has lived here with his wife and two sons since 2005. The walls are all painted in bright colors. There's reds, blues, lime green. And this is a pattern that I saw in a lot of houses in Saad. They're beautifully cared for, but they're starting to show their yeah, age. Yeah, so I mean, you can tell, like, we need work, right? We need, you know, the floor, but the, all the tiles are cracked. And so, so every year we get a few things done, like a co-op we'll get, like we're going to get our, our back, probably our back porch looked at, but, you know. That's the thing, there's just no money, no consistent money. In 1985, the federal government started transitioning away from Section 95 housing supports, and things started to go downhill from there. Federal government used to administrate the program, and then it got passed down to the Newfoundland Labrador Housing. That's Bernice Stamp. She's the treasurer of SOD. She's the person in charge of trying to secure grants for the co-op grants for things like maintenance and repairs. And she says that it hasn't always been this hard. Now one time, Newfoundland Labrador Housing, we used to find them good, you could go to them and you could get a grant and stuff years ago. But after our, you know, the mortgages were paid off, they couldn't care less. About five years ago, Saad finished paying off all of the houses in the co-op. And you would think that that's a good thing, right? When an individual homeowner pays off their mortgage, they're more secure than ever in their housing. The bank can't come knocking and take it all away. But what should have been a liberating experience has turned into the crux of a lot of their current problems. Because now, the co-op members are on their own. And they're trying to navigate a system that seems to be rigged against them. So for example, the houses in Saad are old. They're over 100 years old. And they need work. They need things like new windows, better insulation, and there are tons of grants through the province to help homeowners with things like that. Things like a home energy saving program that can help low-income households make their homes more energy efficient. When there are programs around, like green programs to, uh, you know, get new windows or to, I don't know, green stuff, you know, get a new furnace or switch from oil, dirty oil to new heat pumps and all this kind of stuff, they're, main, they're, they're for homeowners. But the catch is, the members of SOD aren't homeowners. The co-op owns the houses as a collective, and so they're not eligible for those kinds of programs because the government sees them as a nonprofit organization and not individuals. So they say, okay, that's fine. Let's apply for a different kind of grant as an organization. And on paper, that sounds like it's a better idea because they can apply for bigger pots of money. But there are a couple catches. Well, what we found is that there's government programs there, but like they've been too hard to access. When they say too hard to access, what do they mean? It's a bureaucratic nightmare. Okay, that's... <laughs> I'm familiar with those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, We've all been there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that sucks, though. Uh, everything about that sucks. Yeah. You know? I bet a heat pumps would... Those houses are drafty. I have no doubt. They're very drafty. I turned off the recording after I interviewed Kevin and I had to do, you know, we do room tone. So you're sitting there quietly and that's all I could hear was the draft. Yeah. 
just like coming through the window. Wind. Yeah, yeah, wind coming through the window. And, and I said, just like the chattering of teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was the rim tone. <laughs> Brutal. Oh. <laughs> so um, to apply for the grants that they would need, they have to go through these long, convoluted grant applications. We tried to fill these forms out, and it's almost funny like to fill them out. It's like you were going through layers and layers. Like It's like going through layers of lasagna or something, right? Because they're all online, and you never know what the next screen's going to be. So you can't look at the whole thing and have a think about it because you can't go backwards and forwards in these screens. You can't stop in the middle of it. You can't call someone. So we've tried to get these forms. There was one form that was, uh, it was like a Dada poem. It was so crazy. Like it just didn't make any sense. And there was a booklet to fill out the booklet, like a guide booklet to the booklet, about the same size, a 35 page guide booklet to how to fill this. And it's like, what is this? It's impenetrable. It's like, it's like almost like a blur for me because I got, I got so stressed out doing it, right? <laughs> It's like there's an absurdity to it. Like it's, it's like Kafka is giggling in his grave up there at his back, because he's like, yeah, it's impenetrable. So on top of that, to get grants for things like those energy efficient windows that they need, the co-op would first have to prove the lack of efficiency of their current windows. And to prove that, they need to get an energy audit and hire a structural engineer, which can be incredibly expensive. Um, but don't worry, because there's a grant for that application too. And it's just as complicated as the last one. All this is to say that the government is making it incredibly difficult for organizations like SOD to get at this money. To me, my mind is designed more for developers. And I know it's not just us who found it like this. I noticed that, I mean, I talked to David and Roz out at Channel. I mean, they said that they, she said, Roz said to me, uh, I gave up. She said, I tried it with five co-ops. And I said, I said, it's like, I had to give up, right? That's a huge number. Yeah. I mean, that, that's got to, that, that's a pattern, right? That's got to say something about how this is not working. No, because they're just not set up to work, it seems like. You're rewarded if you're in the status quo, but if you're looking at some sort of alternative way to own a house, you're punished. Yeah. So imagine you're Bernice and you somehow manage to navigate all of this and you do submit a grant. You're now competing with hundreds of other much bigger organizations. And because we don't have, like, we're a volunteer organization, we don't have a fundraiser. So then, if we're an organization, then we're competing for bigger pots of money because there are things that you need to do multiple units with. So we're competing with, like, the Stella Burry, which is an amazing organization. But they have a staff of 50 people and probably someone who writes grants for it. That's what all they do is write grants. You start to realize, well, my chances are actually getting any money or so is it worth is it worth the time and the effort but we're competing with them and we're like but we're just such a small fry compared to them how can we even compete you could spend all this time and energy doing something and for, for nothing right i figured i had a better chance of winning the lottery to be honest with you bernice and the other members of sod have been trying to navigate this maze for a few years now with no success they were lucky enough to get a housing catalyst grant from the city a few years ago, but for the most part, it's just been a losing battle. Over the last few years, Saad has reached out to CMHC to ask for help, but they haven't had any luck. Honestly, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I worry for, for them. Roz, who we heard from earlier in the episode, has been trying to help Bernice navigate all of this. Because right now, I find with Saad, they'll go to CMHC or they'll go to the government or they'll go to a lender 
And as soon as they say the age of the homes, they don't want anything to do with them because they don't think they're viable. Remember, most of the houses in the co-op are over 100 years old, which means fixing them up is going to be way more expensive for CMHC compared to helping out a lot of other co-ops on the island that are in newer buildings. I don't, I honestly, I have no answers. I, I, it, it just blows my mind to think that, okay, we have 100-year-old homes and nobody wants to help. But they need the same kind of uh, input that every other housing co-op or home has. I mean, you need your roofs done, your windows, your doors, and your siding, your flooring. They need their heating systems done. Their electrical needs to be upgraded. But unless someone is willing to, um, is going to be willing to say, okay, we're going to take a chance. We'll do it. Then we have a big fight on our hands for sod. So in a way, it's kind of strange. They've come full circle because when they started off those protests in the beginning, it was about trying to save these houses from being torn down. And they did that. They formed a co-op. But now, again, the houses are starting to fall down and they can't seem to get money to save them. Um, so right now, the members of SOD are in kind of this limbo. They're unable to get grants that they need to fix up the houses. And they're pretty much abandoned by the governmental organizations that were created and promised to maintain them. So there are two possible options for SOD, but they don't really like either of them. Um, the first thing they could do is they could amalgamate with another co-op. I don't even know if they, uh, if anybody would even merge with them to take on the responsibility of the age of the homes. Plus, no one in SOD wants to amalgamate. They like being small and autonomous. And we kind of joke that we're like a bumblebee that's kind of like, yeah, how does it ever fly? But like, look, it kind of wobbles, but it manages to get from A to B. B, B, right? So, um, so we're happy as we are. We're happy being autonomous as we are. And the other proposed solution has to do with the monthly housing charges that each individual co-op member pays. Because SOD is a nonprofit and because they're founded on the basis of affordable housing, the charges that everyone's paying a month are very low. What do we know what people are currently paying? It's it's not much money, right? It's not much. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I've heard a couple of numbers thrown around, but no one would really go on record saying how much they're paying. I've heard somewhere around five or $600 from some people, but I'm also not sure whether everyone's paying the same or whether it's kind of a tiered system. One thing we can say is it's it's well below market oh, rates. Oh, well below market rates. No, um, because market rates are frankly kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and they want to make sure that they're keeping this housing affordable and something that someone who is lower income, who's an artist or an activist, can afford to live in a home. So another way that they could get money is to remortgage the houses that they have. Um, because they already have the houses, they own them, they're an asset. But last year, when they tried to remortgage one of the houses to get enough money to do those renovations that they need, the bank looked at how little the co-op members were paying a month and said, no, we're not going to give you any money. And they're saying you have to make that um, market value. And a lot of the consultants that Saad has reached out to are saying the same thing. Kind of gotten a bit of a tangle with the guy from the federal co-op thing few years ago about this because they were talking about you know he said i've got all the experience with old houses in thunder bay wherever he was from and you have all all have old houses and here's what you need to do you know you have to be at market value we're not we're not going to charge the same as a private landlord that's crazy we're not we're not we certainly won't be doing that right because i mean the whole point of it is, is it to make it affordable for people so they're not paying over 30 percent 
a lot of the members of SOD are low income. And so if they do end up raising these monthly housing charges, that rate might mean that some of the people couldn't afford to be in the co-op anymore. Part of the whole philosophy behind cooperative housing is that it creates housing security for low to mid-income people. That's pretty basic. And if you're saying in order for us to play their game, to get money for what they're calling social housing, we have to therefore abandon that principle. They're not compatible. You can't do both, right? Because if you made someone pay market value, then you would make them eat, what, cat food? I don't know, cat food's at all, it's only not a tin now. It's more expensive than, than tuna fish. So we have to remember that this co-op is unique. Because the houses are spread across the city, they're not held together by location, they're held together by a mandate. The vision of providing affordable housing downtown. And if that goes away, then what's the point of the co-op anymore? We're in the midst of a housing crisis. We're seeing things like rent evictions, skyrocketing rent, tent cities. This is the landscape of housing in Newfoundland right now. It's like when Frank and the original founders of Sod protested back in 1980, they saw the writing on the wall, a dark prophecy of what housing would become in St. John's. The government should be held accountable because of the, what they're doing about what was a massive housing crisis. In, in a country like Canada, in a province like Newfoundland, with our resources and tax base and everything else, for people to be living in tents over there? Yeah, it's, what is that? It's absolutely, criminal absolutely neglect. criminal neglect. Yeah, it's criminal neglect. There are a lot of very complex and nuanced reasons for the crisis that I don't really have time to get into right now. But what everyone seems to agree on is that co-ops, affordable co-ops, could be part of the solution. The government's going to have to look at it as one of, if not the solution to the current crisis across the country, not just here in Newfoundland, but it's everywhere. You know, it's an affordable housing solution for people who might not be in a position to, uh, to afford to, to buy a house, right? Especially in today's economic climate, right? Cooperative housing is definitely one of the um, answers to the problem, an actual answer to it. Um, you know, I was listening to a politician, blah, blah, in a way, on the radio just the other day, saying, well, you know, we're studying this. This is a very complex problem. It isn't that complex a problem. Either you build housing or you support the, uh, initiatives like co-op housing. And maybe we can, uh, we can work together to do something you know, to at least see that they're going to free up some properties. I know, like, we'll take schools or churches or anything that's been vacated and it's government, then, you know, we'll gladly take it off your hands. We'll pay you the dollar if that's what you want, but give us the property. I know I might sound like I'm being a little bit facetious, but I don't mean to be, because we really desperately need co-op housing. And I think it's the answer to, is going to be the answer to a lot of the questions and a lot of the, the issues and the struggles that are out there. Everybody wants the same thing. They want home. So in October of 2023, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador released a five-point plan to improve available affordable housing. Part of that plan includes zoning vacant land in Pleasantville for low-income housing. And Roz is hoping to convince CMHC to give at least some of that land to Channel. So hopefully, with this new money and uh, and uh, government land that we're hoping to get, I think I'm almost confident that we do have a piece. Um, maybe we'll get another three or four hundred units. Who knows? And if NLHC goes for it, 
this would be a major win for affordable housing and housing co-ops. So let's imagine that this works, that the federal or provincial governments decide to invest in new co-op housing projects. They build those 400 units Raz is dreaming of. How can we be confident that the government will keep taking care of them once they've aged out like Saad did? Because if the federal government can throw money at an issue in 1980 and then just take it away or make it too hard to navigate, what's to stop them from doing it again 20 years down the line? It was the big thing. It was the new, it was the new thing on the market. And everybody was talking co-op housing and the government was involved in co-op housing. And you could go to anywhere in Mount Pearl and they were starting to put up new units and there'd be some government official with the shovel, his foot on the shovel, and that would be in the paper. It's a switch and bait because they use these uh, funding programs and stuff to help them get elected. Then they take it and they bury that money so as that they can keep the de- deficit down. That money might be there, but they, I know that they are instructed to make it very difficult to get that money. We need to take a long, hard look at the system because housing isn't just a roof and four walls. It's a human right that everyone deserves. So many questions, though. Go for it. <laughs> I do, I do. Well, okay, well, one of my big questions is definitely, we heard from Saad, and we heard from the Roz. Roz at Channel. Yeah. Yeah. But how many co-op organizations are there? Like, are there other groups like Saad, or is Saad unique? Saad is unique in the fact that they live in houses that are not next to each other, at least in Newfoundland. Okay. But there are cooperative houses that are connected here in Newfoundland. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's cool. a couple out in Mount Pearl. Um, Roz actually lives in one of them. I was wondering, Roz. So yeah. The next question: Does Roz live in co-op housing? Yeah, <laughs> Roz does lives in does live in co-op housing, and she, she loves it, right? Yeah, she does. Okay. She was kind of. She told me she was a little bit unsure about it when she first got into it, but she's fallen in love with it, and now her kids live in co-op housing. And the co-op housing you mentioned that there was co-op housing in Cornerbrook too. Are those houses connected, or those uh, not connected next to each other, or are those separated as well? I'm not 100 percent sure. Fair. That's fair. And so, like, the Mount Pearl situation, like the Ross is in, that's, would you see, like, an apartment building, or it's a townhouses, or? I think she lives in a bungalow, but they're all very near each other. It's like a neighborhood situation, and then there are some who are in apartment buildings. So, it's like a single family home that she lives in, basically? That's, yeah, that's so interesting. For me, it comes back to, it makes me think of, like, utopias. But I just, I think this is the thing, right? Because on some level, you're listening to this, you're like, okay, like this is a really good deal. We're not totally sure that every person who lives in a co-op in Saad um, is low income and, and couldn't afford to raise their rate. But I, I can totally imagine that is the case, but I, you know, we don't know. Um, and so then you're like, well, if you could do that, maybe you should. Maybe the government shouldn't give you money. But I think the rub is, is you start thinking about Pleasantville, right? Because here the government is planning on building uh, apartment building that's I think four stories high or four to six something like that and it's going to cost you know tens of millions at minimum so the government's already in the mix in housing right they're building units in a lot of places so when you see a model the utopian model of this co-op housing where okay after it's built 
you know, there's a long period. I mean, we're talking 40 years now, basically, where they haven't asked for any money. Mm. You know, that's a pretty, that must be an improvement on the cost of these units, right? Like if, you, if you're looking at on two columns, you've got one column, build this big apartment building and run it as a part of Newfoundland housing, like social housing. Or on the other hand, build it and then let the tenants govern themselves, basically, as autonomous people with an interest in their own buildings and make their own decisions about the building. I mean, I've got to guess that it would make so much more sense to do the co-op thing on both angles where it's like, it's probably cheaper. And I think you had to feel better living in a co-op than you do. I mean, obviously they're describing a community here. And the, like you and I had a lot of questions where like, well, how much is it? And that's the fixation. Like, yes, every, you know, yeah. how does it work? You know, why are we like this? I don't know. <laughs> but the thing is like Rebecca said, you know, regardless of what they're paying, housing is a human right. And like at some point, if the government was chipping in and then for them to take that funding away, that that's a, a practice in cruelty you know that's there comes down to some sort of um why start something you can't finish like let's put up a building and then stop caring for it 20 minutes later and just let it think of the grace hospital just let it fall into the <laughs> into the ground <laughs> like, <laughs> i mean that's definitely the what we're doing right now and we're just at this stage now where we take it for granted that the market price of a house is the price it's a fair price it is what it is you can't do anything about it and you know what we forget about is that a huge percentage of rental properties are owned by big companies who make money off the rent mm -hmm. um you know like that's we're, we just let the market run wild since the 80s and i think that's at the root of this you know well, Rebe rebecca brought up 30 percent of your income is like what people have in their brains that they pay on housing but that it's gone up it's gone up considerably. And I, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I spend more than 30%. Oh, yeah. Way more. Yeah. Way more. Yeah. I would say half. Yeah. Yeah. I would say over half sometimes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. When you consider I'm including bills, yeah. I think. Yeah. But that's ridiculous that we accept that. Rebecca, yeah. do you think, you know, you spend a lot of time with these co-op owners, you know, um, did you come away thinking, man, we should build more co-op housing? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It seems like it's a system that works. And then also kind of circling back to what you're saying about the market, I was talking to Kevin um, and he was pointing out the fact that the market has been so manipulated. It's not a natural system. And so us saying that we have to abide by the rules of an unnatural system is illogical and on some level is immoral when you get to putting people out on the streets because they can't pay these inflated prices. And I think that's one of the reasons that this co-op was started was to make sure that we're questioning the system and making sure that we're setting people up to be able to live. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank, oh, you. thank you. And this is the time machine where we look at different housing movements in history. All right, it's time to hop in the way back time machine. It's 1965 and we're in Sweden. And television is just starting to launch called their broadcasts and Swedish youth, they're into bell bottoms, miniskirts, and they're really getting into prog rock. Plus, there's a massive housing crisis. Between 1860 and 1960, Sweden had gone from this rural sort of nation to a highly industrialized one, and everyone flocked to the urban centers. But the cities were super small, crowded, floors were usually made of dirt. Um, and Sweden was in this really unique position because it was wealthy. 
All of this industrialization led to a flood of income in the national treasury. And the Swedish leaders announced they would build one million new properties for people as quickly as possible. This was called the Million Program. And the end goal was affordable, safe, modern places to live. It's pretty unique in social housing movements in that um, it wasn't targeted at low-income folks. Million Program intended to house Swedish people at all, all these various income levels. And there was sort of like a socialist political movement at work here. These new builds, they wanted them to sort of create good democratic citizens. So architects were encouraged to include schools, daycares, courtyards, and like all these shared spaces in the designs. So their goal was to house a million people? A million people. Did that did that actually happen? Yeah, it sort of did. Uh, for a long time, it was touted as this like, great success story. Nowadays, there are a lot of criticisms loved. <laughs> the houses went up quickly. The houses were of good quality. Uh, the houses were warm. People were housed. In that way, they met their goals. But um, those shared spaces that architects proposed, they were either built late or not at all. Um, so the libraries, the daycares, not a lot of those came to fruition. Um, and nowadays, a lot of Sweden's most vulnerable areas, those were constructed as part of the Million Program. So sometimes the program is accused of creating or reinforcing segregation. And, and then there's the aesthetic thing again. A lot of people find the Million Project homes to be sort of like dull and uninspiring. And when you look at pictures, it does seem very Soviet cement block <laughs> when you look at the million houses. These weren't individual homes. These were generally apartment buildings. Okay. Yeah. And that is the time machine. Lock and Key is produced by Olivia Ball, edited by Luke Quinton, and I am the co-host, Andy Bullman. Music by Jake Nickel. Our art is by Shanley Pomeroy. A big thank you to Tom Baird and Sarah Swain. Justin Brake is the editor of The Independent, and for more in-depth stories about the housing crisis, you can go to theindependent.ca. And we want to thank everyone who shared their stories with us over this past year. The Lock and Key podcast received funding from the Community Housing Transformation Center, the Center. However, the views expressed are the personal views of the author, and the Center accepts no responsibility for them.